Well, good evening, everybody. A special welcome to those of you who are new. Why is everybody laughing? Did I say good evening? Wow. <laughs> Off to a great start. Um, Freudian slip. I'm already looking forward to the evening service. Um, thank you. Um, it's good to be here, too, guys. Thanks for... Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I lead the Clarendon campus that meets on, on Sunday evenings. And uh, yeah, if you are new or this is your second or third week, regardless of what your spiritual background is, if you are opposed to Jesus, if you've never been in church before, if you've been coming to church for a long time, uh, this is a space where we work really hard to cultivate a warm environment for you to see what it means to be united to life in Christ. And so about every eight weeks or so, uh, Jason and I will swap pulpits and fill in for each other. It's always a joy to come here uh, when, when I do. And so we're about, our, so our campus is getting ready to untether and become our own church in the next six to nine months or so. And so at this point, I, I'm feeling like a, you know, a, a college graduate who's still living in his parents' basement. And the parents like, I, okay, I love you, but come on, you know. Get out there on your own. And so just thank, thank you all as a church. Thank you so much, Jason, and the other elders here who are loving and supporting our church uh, so well. Um, this comment w- wasn't planned, and Jason wouldn't want me to say this, but you guys have a really good pastor. You guys have really good elders here. Uh, like especially over the past couple months, Kelsey and I have been going through some things personally, and, and our church has been going through some some difficult things. And... The, the many times I've seen Jason and the other elders behind closed doors when, when nobody else is watching uh, sacrifice of themselves and show a lot of humility and kindness, it, it's been an incredible model to me as a young pastor. And so, Jason, thank you uh, so much for that, and uh, Christy as well, because you play a big part in that, and all the other uh, leaders here. So you, you guys are in a great church. I, I wish I was still here. Um, so maybe, Jason, we can talk afterward. <laughs> We can uh, change course on this direction. So uh, so let's go ahead and jump in. We're in the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So if you don't have a Bible, please grab one from the back. You can keep it. That's our gift to you. And so Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13, we're going to read this, and then we'll dive in together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is God's word. So Philippians is all about treasuring and pursuing Christ above all things. And, or as Jason's been putting it, it's losing your story in light of Jesus' big story. So that Jesus and everything that he's done and is doing becomes the most controlling reality in your life. And what you all looked at over the past two, week, two weeks in uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, was about how Jesus, who's God himself, came to earth, took on human flesh, lived, died, rose, ascended, all to the glory of God the Father, so that you could be saved by grace. So not by any of your own merit. You can't earn it, but all through what God has done. So God saves you by grace. And what Paul's going to do now today in in verse 12 is he asks the question, what role does grace have in the life of the believer? Or, Or put another way, what is your role in salvation? 
Are you active or are you passive? And Paul's answer is yes. Yes, you're active and you're passive. And so this idea of working out your own salvation, but it's God who works in you, uh, this is often misunderstood in the church. And depending on which ditch you fall into, either just focusing so much on your initiative and your activity or being passive, uh, leads to not just error, um, but misery and even danger in the life of a believer. So that's what we're going to look at today. And so we'll look at this passage under two headings. Uh, First, we'll see the, the effort that grace does call you to. So the effort that does that grace does call you to. And then second, we'll look at the comfort that grace gives you. So first, the, the effort that grace calls you to. And then second, the comfort that grace gives you. And so just so you all are, are aware and forewarned of what will likely be the emotional feel of, of, this, of this text, is so first, Paul's going to, to beat you with a, with a velvet hammer. So that'll be the first half. And then on the second half, he'll give you a, a balm for, for your wounds after he's given you a, a very firm warning in love. Okay, so first, number one, the effort that grace calls you to. So in, in verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And so this sentence is very confusing if you don't know what Paul means by salvation. So Paul uses the word salvation in a multifaceted sense in Scripture, and today we'll just look at two of those senses. So the first facet through which he views salvation is through what's called justification. So justification is 100% God's doing, not any of your doing. So God, without your permission, he sets his heart on you, he comes into the world in the person of Jesus, he lives, dies, rises again, and then puts his spirit in you to give you saving faith. He gives you a new heart, a new mind, adopts you into his family. You're forgiven. You're in his family for all eternity. This is 100% God. So even your faith itself is a gift. So this is, this is the passive component in salvation. This is the wonderful news of the gospel and what sets it apart from every single other religion. God saves you not based on your merit, but on Christ's merit. So there, there's that passive component where God's at work, but then there's a second facet of salvation, what Paul means, and that is sanctification. So sanctification is the present and iterative process by which daily you die to sin and follow God's good, good commands, which are for your joy. And as you do so, progressively, like a dirty mirror that's being made more more clean, you more brightly and clearly reflect the image of Jesus. And you are transformed into the image of Christ, which will one day culminate in the new creation. And it'll be amazing. Now, this process of sanctification, where you put sin to death, obey God, and are transformed into Christ's image and reflect his attractiveness and his character, this is cooperative, So God works in you, but you have to work. So so Paul uses the phrase there, work out. Work work, work it out with all your might. So this this verb there, it has the same idea of, so you bring something about by doing it. So if you all go to the gym and you see somebody just striving away really hard, working, 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 they bring about a stronger heart and stronger muscles through their exercise. So in the same way, when you work out your salvation, not work, not earn your salvation, but work it into your life, this is a work that that requires you, that that requires your initiative and your effort. And so this is this is not a let go and let God thing. 
this is a labor. And so one way to sum this up is how the 20th century teacher Dallas Willard put it. He said, grace is not opposed to earning. Or, sorry, grace is opposed to earning. I always mess that up. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And that's what Paul's saying here. And so here's why this is important. So there's this uh, early church father named Tertullian. Pretty cool name, right? I want to name my son Tertullian. And so he's, he's known for saying this. He says, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so there, so there are two thieves of the gospel that always plague the church. So on, on one hand of the gospel, you have legalism. This idea that God saves you based on your merit. So you can call this Santa Claus theology. So, you know, you better watch out. You better not cry. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake because Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus theology, if you're good, God will bless you and take you to heaven. And I, I know many of you grew up in churches and environments with a more legalistic bent to it. Where, where you hear things like, oh, if, if you kiss the person you're dating, and if you read Harry Potter books, and if you go to a school dance, that's bad. God's not going to take you to heaven. Okay, so heavy emphasis on, on obedience to earn your salvation. But then there's the, the other thief on the other side of the gospel, which is called antinomianism, which means anti-law. So antinomianism, which means because God does save by grace, th- this means that it doesn't matter how you live doesn't matter at all how you live. And so antinomianism, it's, a, it's actually a bit of a twist on good theology because good theology says you can't merit your salvation. But then it goes so far as to say because you are saved by grace, you can, yeah, we're all messed up, but you can, you can live however you please. And so I, I bring this up because while many of you probably grew up in, in a more legalistic um, in, environment, I think we've swung the pendulum far to the other end, where now it, at the end of the day, it doesn't, like, holiness really isn't taken that seriously. And so just, just think about this. When, when you meet somebody who, you see them really working out their salvation, so they labor to, to put sin to death, uh, to follow God's good commands in, in all facets of life, and then they, they, they call you out on certain things, you know, like, oh, should you be saying things like that, or are you really sure you should be dating that person? Like, your reaction can be a little bit like, hmm, this person's kind of intense. Or, or why are you being so uptight and judgy? But this is the, this is the warning that, that Paul's giving. He's saying, no, actually, working out your salvation, striving with all your might, is a, is a good thing. Because grace, it is opposed to earning. It's, it's not opposed to effort. And so to, to drive this home, uh, particularly for any of you who are sitting there just, okay, Steve, can we get to the next point? Um, Paul's echoing what Jesus says. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, it's toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus, in love, says something that's very hard to hear. He, he says, wide is the gate and easy is the path that leads to destruction. And those who are on it are many. And then he says, narrow is the gate and hard is the way. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so what Jesus is saying there is, is he's saying the odds of you flipping a coin and getting tails are greater 
than you making it to the end as a believer. The, the odds are stacked against you. The odds are stacked against you. And why is the way hard that leads to life? Well, first it's hard because salvation is by grace, and so it requires humility to admit that you do need a Savior. It's one of the hardest things for a human being to do is put pride to death and admit they need a Savior. But it's also hard because it is hard to, to in response to God's grace, regularly live a life of obedience and takes in very seriously. It requires you to go against the entire tide of, of culture. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. So, so, so work at it with, with, with all your might. Don't be passive. You're just coasting into eternity. You should question if you've really received God's grace. This is what I mean by the, the velvet hammer in the beginning. And this is because Jesus and Paul, they, they love you. And so what, what, are, what are a couple applications? So first, a, a general one, and then just uh, two specific applications. To, like, what does it look like to work out your salvation? So Paul's saying here, be, be disciplined. And th- this area, this DMV area, is very disciplined. I mean, there, there are many people who I know wake up and run 10 miles, and Stephen, I'm looking at you, and, you know, do all their finances before I've even woken up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. I mean, you all are disciplined People, You all went to, to good schools, took hard exams. You work very hard in your job. You work hard in your home. You're disciplined in your social life. But the question you need to ask yourself is, if somebody were to observe your life, would they see you being more disciplined in your spiritual life than you are with your career, with the food that you eat and your body, with your family? Because this is the, the, the kind of discipline that, that, that Paul's talking about. Are you disciplined? And then so second, to, to be more specific, just looking at this text. So in verse 12, you'll notice that Paul says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So what Paul is saying is, don't just work out your salvation when me, the, the great teacher, is around. So he's saying, what, you can distill it down to saying, take responsibility. Take responsibility to, to, to grow in knowledge, to, to grow in obedience. And so in love, what I want to challenge you guys with, because this is what Paul is, is challenging the, the Philippians with, is oftentimes in a church, you, you hear a lot of blame shifting. So, well, this church isn't giving me what I need. So uh, there's not enough old people here. There's not enough young people here. This church isn't diverse enough. I don't like how they do community groups. The leaders aren't caring for me well. And while, yeah, sometimes there may be issues that need to be looked at, what what Paul is saying is rather than becoming a martyr and blaming other people for your lack of growth, are you taking responsibility for your own growth? Because when when you do, I mean, rarely, never have I seen somebody take responsibility and it never worked out well. So, for example, there's a couple at the Clarendon campus, and they used to come to this church. And I remember I was in the same community group with them about probably six years ago now. And I remember them, them telling uh, me at the community group, they were saying, you know, we're feeling really disconnected at this church. 
And people aren't really taking initiative to reach out to us. You know, we just feel kind of left out, especially with, with the married people and, and those with kids. And so we're thinking about leaving church, leaving the church and going somewhere else. But then what they said is, they said, you know, but what we're going to do is we're going to take six months and we're going to take initiative. So we're going to reach out to people. Um, even when people don't respond well to us, we're going to continue to try to pursue people in relationship and see, see what God does. And, and they did. And it worked out amazingly. I mean, they're, they're leaders in our church. I've seen so many lives change through them. And they're now very connected into the community because they, they, they took responsibility. And so are you always blaming other people? Or are you taking responsibility for, for working out your salvation? Because grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. And so what, what this looks like is showing up to church on time and actually being active Listening to the words that you're singing, uh, listening to a sermon, not just saying, oh, that's interesting, and going home and forgetting about it, but actually going home, talking with your family about it if you have one, talking about it with your community, living out obedience, not just at church on Sunday, but but in your work life. Because when when Jesus says God works in you, when Paul says God works in you, it's not, it's not devoid or abstracted from an active faith. Okay, so take responsibility. And then then number two, um, do you regularly confess and repent? Because Paul's talking about this in the context of the danger of pride. So earlier on in verses one through five of chapter two, he's talking about how humility is, is at the basis of unity. And in fact, pride is, you could say, is the most dangerous sin so pride, pride destroys marriages, pride destroys friendships. Pride is the reason the devil became the devil. Because pride is the ultimate anti-God state of mind. And so a huge part of putting pride to death in your life, and as Pastor Nate said a few weeks ago, if you don't think you're proud, you're proud, is, is daily confession and repentance and running after Christ. And when you look at a lot of the prayer lives of, of believers, you, you don't see this as a common thread in, in, in their prayer lives. And God says in Second Chronicles 7, he says, if, if my people who are called by my name will, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will, then I will heal them and forgive their sin and, and heal their land. And I will be with them. Do you pray daily? And when you do, do you, do, you, do you lament over your sin? Not just over the consequences of it, but, but the one who you're grieving. And so what this looks like is, is actually con- confessing and, and grieving over the bitterness that you hold on to, uh, the greed that you have, the, the pride that you have, your, your indifference toward other people. A regular re- repentance, is, it's such a crucial way that God changes you and grows you, makes you more self-aware, gives you more contentment, gives you more joy. And guys, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I've had the unfortunate perspective to see a number of people walk away from the faith over the past 10 years. And in every single case, not once did one of these people, did you have a regular pattern of, of confession, repentance, and running after Christ? It, it's so important. So work out your salvation. Be disciplined. Take responsibility. Repent regularly. Because the the gate is narrow 
and the way is hard that that leads to life. So that's number one. That, that's the effort grace calls you to. Now, thank goodness the passage doesn't end there. Right, but it continues to verse 13. Now, as we move into verse 13, what's critical is to not blunt the sharpness of verse 12 as we move into the comfort of verse 13. Because Paul never wants you to emphasize one while suspending the other. You need to hold both in, in tandem with each other. And so as we move into what is the comfort grace brings you. So Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what you should be feeling, if you're just sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, work out your salvation, then you're not really hearing it. You should be thinking, this is impossible to actually stay on the narrow path all the way to the end. And you're right. It is impossible on your own. And so that, that's why Paul tells you the only reason you can and should even try this endeavor is because God works in you. And so what does it look like for God to work in you as you work out your salvation? So I'm going to give you just a few beautiful truths that I hope nourish you as, as you walk out of here today. <laughs> just looking at, at the beauty of who God is and how committed he is to you as you work out your salvation. Okay, so we'll look at just a few things. So, so the first thing, what does it look like for God to work in you to progress you and persevere you to the end? The first thing God does is he gives you a, he, he puts his spirit in you. So when Paul says God works in you to will and to work, this means even your desire to obey is from God. So, so first this should, this should humble you and give you a lot of patience, especially with people who you get really frustrated with because they're not listening to you or they're not as far along as, in, as you in a particular area. Because if you are obeying in a particular area, even that is a grace of God. That's God working in you. Okay, but, but also more than humbling you, what I, this maybe isn't that intuitive, but how I hope this steadies you is, I know a lot of you feel very weary. Like you're, you're just so tired of trying to obey, of, of trying to put to death your selfishness, trying to put to death your, your sexual urges that are outside of what God tells you in Scripture, trying to put to death your, your greed and materialism. And, and a lot of you are young here, and so it's just like, how long can I keep this up? But if you, if you are fighting, if you are fighting, you should take that as, as a comfort that you belong to God. Because in, in Galatians 5, when Paul's talking about the, the fruits of the Spirit, he says, when you are indwelled by God's Spirit, the Spirit works against the flesh, and the flesh works against the Spirit. So when you become a believer, there's a new fight in you that you didn't have when you weren't a believer. And so if, yeah, sure, if you're just rolling over for things, and okay, it doesn't matter if I disobey here, that sh- should be cause to concern. But, but if you are fighting to put sin to death, rather than make that cause you to despair and question your faith, that should, also, that should actually give you confidence that you do belong to God, because otherwise you wouldn't even care about fighting. And the more you do it, the easier it will get. Until in glory, there will no longer be a fight in you. Because your will will be perfectly aligned with God's, and that will be a beautiful day. And so that's the, that's the first way God works in you. He puts his spirit in you to help you fight. N- number two, God working in you means that your efforts aren't ultimately dependent on you, but on Christ who prays for you. Jesus prays for you daily. You know that? 
So in, in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Jesus is able to save those to the uttermost. Uttermost, all the way. Jesus is able to save those to the uttermost who draw near to God through him because he lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, the resurrected and exalted Christ, prays for you. So let's be honest, your, your prayers are, are sad sometimes. My prayers are pathetic and embarrassing sometimes. But Jesus himself, with all his beauty and merit, prays for you. Think about that, the, the efficacy of his prayers, the power of his prayers, the fact that his prayers are always perfectly aligned with God the Father. He prays for you. He prays for you to grow. He prays for you not to fall away. He prays for you to persevere to the end. You, you see a case study of this in Luke 22 where Jesus prays for Peter. Jesus prays for Peter. He says, Peter, I've prayed for you so that Satan will not have you. Now, did Peter fall? Yeah, Peter fell hard on his face. But Peter persevered. Why? Because of Peter? No. Because Jesus prayed for him. And he prays for you. God gives you his spirit. Jesus himself is interceding for you. Number three, God working in you means that you progress and persevere in the faith, not because of your promise to God, but because of God's promise to you. Because of God's promise to you. So what, what are God's promises to you? Well, there's an amazing one in Romans 8.30. He, he says that those whom God has predestined, he has also called. Those whom he has called, he has also justified. Those whom he has, he has justified, he also glorified. What this means is, so if you are trusting in Jesus, this means that God has predestined and called you. What has God called you to? What well, says he's justified you and he glorifies you. What this means is that when God sets his heart on you and chooses you, he does not just choose you to one day believe in Jesus. He does not just choose you to have your sins forgiven. No, God, think bigger. God chooses you to be conformed to the image of his son. God chose you unto glory. God chose you to have all your tears wiped away. God chose you to have all your pain wiped away. God chose you to one day be brought into his arms where he will dwell with you and you will dwell with him and all his people for all eternity. That is God's promise to you. How strong is God's promise to you? Well, in Hebrews 6, it says that, that God desiring to convince the heirs of his promise, that's you, God desiring to convince the, the heirs of his promise to show the unchanging nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath in which it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. This means that when, when God makes an oath to you, and he has, that means his oath is binding. That means his oath is steady state. That means his oath is immutable. Which means in your life, while you will fall, you will not fall away. While you will fail, you will not fail completely. While there will be moments where, where, you, where you don't hold on to Christ, and you put something else in his place, God does not stop holding on to you. Why? Because your salvation does not ultimately depend on your efforts or your oath to God, but on God's efforts and God's oath to you, and his oath is perfect. What, what a God. 
What a savior. Thank you. And finally, your progress and perseverance in the faith, it doesn't just depend on God's spirit in you. It doesn't just depend on Jesus interceding for you or God's promise to you. It depends on God's love for you. Because he doesn't just make promises. He, he loves you. And what's beautiful about the Bible is rather than just describing God's love for you, it shows it. And so there's a remarkable place in the beginning of John 13 where Jesus goes to wash his disciples' feet. And so it's a well-known passage. Jesus washes his feet. But there is a verse there in verse 1 that you tend to read by without noticing what it says. And I didn't notice it until last year. And ever since I did, it's become one of my favorite verses. And in John 13, 1, right before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, before he's betrayed and crucified, it says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart from the world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is, this is circular. It doesn't say God loved his own because they were such great people. God didn't love his disciples because they were so obedient. Having loved, he loved. Having loved from the beginning, he loved them to the end. And so here, here's, what, here's what this means. So it means many things about Christ's love, but when you look at whose feet he's washing, it's incredible. And it shows you that God's love for you does not depend on your worthiness. Because look at whose feet he's washing. So John himself says that at this point in time, Satan had put it into Judas to betray Jesus. And so Jesus knows when he kneels down to wash their feet, Judas is there. He knows Judas is going to betray him. Peter's there. He knows that Peter's going to deny that he ever knew Jesus. Every single one of these people who Jesus kneels for are either going to betray him, deny him, doubt him, or run away from him. All of them are going to wound Jesus right at his heart. Yet he washes every one of their feet without exception. He washes every one. And so what you need to do is put yourself in that scene. And it's as if Jesus is kneeling there, looking up at you through the pages, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Telling you, come be my disciple. Come be my disciple. Because when you put, when you trust in me, I put my love on you. And when I put my love on you, nothing can dislodge it. Not, not a billion failures. You can deny me, you can doubt me, you can fail me. I love you all the way to the end. And I'm not just going to kneel on the ground. I'm going to kneel all the way into hell itself for you to take your sin into my very soul and take the punishment you deserve for your sin. Also showing you that I meant what I said in my oath to redeem you. And I'll raise from the dead, ascend, 
and seal my oath to you by my spirit so that you know I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. Guys, you can scour the whole universe for a love like this. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You can drive a thousand trucks of diamonds and jewels of affirmation from your friends, loved ones, and it does not compare to a love like this. You persevere in progress in the faith because Jesus loves you, not because you're perfect, because he's perfect. So work out your own salvation. Don't, don't blunt the forceness, of the, the, the sharpness of that. Because the gate is narrow and the way is hard. So be disciplined. Take responsibility as an agent. Re- repent daily, knowing that God works in you. This means that he's called you, he's justified you, and he sanctifies you. And in sanctifying you, He conforms you to the image of his son through Jesus interceding for you, through his promise and his oath to you, through him loving you all the way to the end, and then he takes you into glory. That's his goal. And that's where you're going. Because having loved you who were in the world, he loved you all the way to the end. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that um, you will help us to not focus on one of these truths at the expense of the other, but both. Uh, Help us to wake us up to where we do need to labor in our salvation and at the same time comfort us with your promises to us. Lord, for anyone here who's on the cusp of either leaving you or joining your family, Lord, I pray that you will draw them to you. Uh, Don't let them walk out of here, Lord, without taking this very seriously. Please persevere all of us. Lord, I can't wait for all of us to celebrate you in glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.